From the offices of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas, just footsteps from the White House, the heart of the nation's capital. This is 14th NG, the podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. Here's your host, C.R. Wooters. Welcome to 14th and G, the podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. This episode, we take a deep dive into healthcare. Joined by my colleague Lauren Aronson and Andy Chasen, who has a long history with the Republican Party and is currently working for Blue Shield of California. We're going to take a deep dive into drug pricing and all things healthcare. Okay, here's Andy and Lauren. All right, Andy and Lauren, welcome to 14th and G. Thanks for having us. Thank you. <laughs> All right, so we're going to take a dive into, uh, into healthcare policy here. Um, but I want to start off with um, kind of current events. Um, the president has been talking about giving a speech on drug prices for a while. It is now rumored that it will be next week as we tape this on Friday. It's rumored it will be sometime next week. It's certainly coming soon. What's he going to say? Well, I think people know that President Trump during his campaign talked a lot about drug pricing and said that Americans had to get a better deal on drugs. And compared to other countries, uh, we just are paying more, and that's that's definitely proven by the facts. So I think this uh, this speech that's coming out is supposed to address that and start to talk about ways that we can address drug pricing. I think it'll talk about both the prices that the government pays, prices that uh, consumers pay, um, but, you know, broadly, uh, I think this is their chance to, you know, really go on the record and start addressing something that, that has continued to remain an issue both, you know, since the last presidential cycle, you know, into the upcoming congressional campaigns uh, and really hasn't, hasn't dissipated. So I, I do think we're likely to see more proposals than action, but I think it is an important step forward for the administration. Yeah, I feel like this is a bipartisan thing, Lauren. Like, I feel like we've been talking about drug pricing forever. What's your perspective on that? Yeah, I agree with that. I think one point that I think it's important to think about in this context is I think that drug prices are an issue that really resonate with the president. I mean, we are told that he asks his staff to work on this issue daily. And I think thematically, it really goes back to what helped him get elected, which is the theme of populism. Um, So I think he really cares about the issue. um, And I look forward to hearing uh, what he has to say next week um, from a drug pricing perspective. Broadly, I think it's really important that the administration look at at where the problem begins, which is with the pharmaceutical manufacturer itself. Um, There really is only one entity in the system that determines the initial price of a product, and everything kind of flows from there. And so making sure that we're looking at you know, obviously the entire chain, it's in, it's critically important to start with the manufacturer itself. Um, but I, I 100% agree, CR. I think obviously this is an issue that Democrats and Republicans care deeply about. Um, you know, Democrats have been on record for many, many years trying to work on this issue. So I think from, I think many Democrats on Capitol Hill are frankly excited to have a bipartisan conversation about it. And so here's a question that I, I, I really don't know the answer to. That AARP has said recently that the um, kind of average annual prices of prescriptions for seniors has gone from uh, gone to twelve thousand dollars a year up from six thousand dollars a year five years ago. It feels like a pretty crazy increase. What is something happened in the last five years that's making this thing go crazy? 
So a couple of things. One, I think part of the problem here is that we have multiple different aspects of the conversations. You have new drugs that are coming to market over the last few years that have significant price tags associated with them. Mm -hmm. You know, years ago you would have seen a new price, a new drug come to market with a price tag of $8,000 or $10,000. And back in the 90s, that was something that was very startling to people. But now we're seeing drugs come to market that are upwards of a million dollars. So I think there's just a larger question of sustainability. But then two, you also have drugs that have been on the market for quite some time that for no or reason are just having significant price increases. Um, And significant could be as small as 3% or as large as 9%. But the reality is that when you compound them, particularly for a senior or any sort of payer in the system, it has a compounding effect, and that's a very critical issue. So, and it's not just the Martin Screlly's of the world. You have this from Pfizer and Novartis and some of the more mainstream manufacturers. So, Just to give you an example, so far this year, Pfizer has had 116 different price increases, ranging between 3% at 9.4%. That is very significant on the entire system and consumers when they're paying for these drugs out of pocket. But so, I mean, Andy, okay, my dad was sick a while back, had leukemia, took a whole bunch of drugs. They saved his life, right? Like, I suspect it took a long time for them to make those drugs. Um, I've... I also suspect they were really expensive. Don't the pharmaceutical companies have some reasonable argument that is like, hey, we're spending all this money, we're developing new drugs, and frankly, we're saving lives. And, you know, how can we really determine what the price of that is? Yeah, I think that's a a great point. And one, obviously, that that the pharmaceutical industry has spent a lot of time and money uh, making to the American consumers. And so for those of us who are concerned about drug prices, there's no doubt that that innovation is critical and that these life-saving drugs are essential. And there is in no way that we want to impede that uh, research and development. Um, but I think we've seen through you know the limited transparency that we've had into how drugs are priced that they've, been, they've become completely disconnected from the actual inputs into the price. So we know from Savaldi, which was priced at $1,000 per pill, First, the government spent a lot of money developing that drugs, kind of did the major research that, that led to the development. The, uh, the startup company that actually did develop the drug uh, wanted to market it for much less, about a third of the cost that it was ultimately marketed for. Uh, and so these, these major pharmaceutical companies in many ways have become marketing companies. And so they buy, uh, it's, it's kind of balance sheet R&D is what I call it. They, they take their you know, significant resources, they buy drugs that are really promising, and then they they promote them and sell them at really inflated prices. Um, but I, I think what we've been asking for is a little bit more transparency into into what actually is going into those costs. And and now what you see from the pharmaceutical industry is they don't really talk about R and D anymore because they know that that stayed really that's really static amount for them. Sure. While the costs have continued to go up uh, in ways that you just can't connect at all to to the inputs. So, so can you, Lauren? Can you add? And this is maybe a question for for remedial uh, healthcare guy over here uh, what how do we get to the final drug price because what's the what's the life cycle of so company X owns a drug and puts it on the market it doesn't come right to me it goes through PBMs and then I get it from CVS or wherever I get it from um, are there cost increases along the road there 
I think it well, it's a great question and it's a complicated one because I think we'd all like to see a very um, systematic chart that kind of explains it, but unfortunately the system is very complex. Um, and I think that there's no doubt there's definitely room for improvement to the system, but at the end of the day, for me, it still comes back to the fact that the manufacturer itself is setting a very high list price and everything flows from that. So as much as we can have a conversation about making changes along the way, if you're starting from a very high list price, that just makes the whole situation much more complex and complicated for consumers. The other thing I think about prescription drug costs is it's a little like my mechanic, right? Like they tell me my transmission's gonna be 5,000 bucks. I don't have any idea. Like, great, sure. We never, as consumers, we don't see a menu like you would in the grocery store that says, you know, if you buy this meat, it's on sale. If you buy this, it's not. Most of the time, you're getting prescribed stuff, and pe- your doctors are saying, this is going to help you fix whatever problem you have or make you feel better. Um, but you don't really know what the costs are until they come to you. Um, shouldn't there be more price transparency along the way? Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's also really important for physicians is that as new drugs come to market, whether it be new brand name drugs or also new biosimilars or or generic drugs, it's really important that we um, do a better job of educating physicians so they understand some of the price points associated with these drugs, but also understand the therapeutic benefits of different drugs. So we want to empower physicians to have that conversation with patients. Um, And I think that's one place where there needs to be more work done. Yeah, it's a I'm not sure I'd want to be a physician for lots of reasons, but but navigating this world of uh, a drug pricing and 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 how to prescribe and how much to prescribe and do you go with the generic? Is it really the same? And all the rest of that stuff must be incredibly complicated, I guess. What's challenging is that biologic drugs are incredibly expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, so Humira is a great example. Um, it is the number one selling drug in the country. Um, the, lots of advertising on lots golf. Lots of advertising <laughs> on golf, absolutely. And what's interesting is actually the profit margin that um, AbbVie, who makes Humira, has made is more than all of the 16 NFL teams combined. Whoa. Which is incredible. Um, you know, it's a lot of money. It's incredibly, um, uh, it's a drug that has a lot of therapeutic benefits, but at the same time, we're spending a lot on it in the part Medicare Part D space. And what's disappointing at the moment is that the market patent, the patent for Humira should have expired in 2016. So under current law, you get a certain amount of, of you know, kind yep. of runway, mm-hmm. I think in layman's terms to put it, to, to have that space and, you know, was a very impressive drug when it came to market, but that should have expired in 2016. And what AbbVie did is they basically created these things called patent estates. It was one of their um, strategic initiatives to basically file close to 100 patents on that drug in the three years leading up to its patent expiration to block off any sort of competition. And so when we think about drug pricing broadly, one of the things that's a major problem is just a lack of competition. We and, and Andy, I would love your perspective here from a market perspective, but I think having more competition generally something we all want, but you're seeing manufacturers go after um, patent estates and figure out ways to basically block any sort of competition. Um, So right now, we're not going to have a biosimilar version of that drug in the states until 2034, and that's a huge problem since their patent expired in 2016. Right. Yeah, so I was a former Republican staffer, and when I was on the Hill, was definitely are you former Republican or are you a former Republican staffer? I'm just giving you a podcast is off the record. I'm just kidding. Um, but but I address I was dealing with a lot of legislation on the pharmaceutical market, and I was always usually intervening on the side of pharmaceutical companies because I thought I was acting to protect this competitive market. And as a 
Republican. That's what you know we wanted was market competition leads to more sustainable pricing, lower pricing, and, yep. and just overall a you know a, a better outcome for for consumers over the long term. Um, but what you know I came to to learn, and I think from the great reporting we've seen uh, lately, is just what a broken market this is, as Lauren said. And and in fact, I think it's a crony capitalist market. I think all the rules and regulations have been put in place to prevent real competition. Uh, and if you look at everything from you know what Lauren mentioned about uh, about patents, about the complete lack of transparency around this market, all of those pieces work together so that the U.S. has a less competitive market than any other country in the world, and that is reflected in the prices that we pay. So for a president who ran on you know kind of draining the swamp, I think that's why this is an attractive issue, um, but w why also I think it's important that whatever he comes out with really meets the test of, of what he said he was going to do. So uh, you both have mentioned other countries outside the United States. So like, we're the biggest dog in the world. Why, why, why is this a problem here and not elsewhere? Why don't we use our collective buying power to you know, uh, lower costs, or why don't we, um, you know, there's always the discussion of drive to Canada and get drugs because they're cheaper there. Why? We should have the best stuff. We have the best medical delivery system in the world. Yeah, well, I, I think uh, that when you've done studies of what other countries pay, I mean, it is undoubted that we pay the highest prices in, in the world. Um, and that is because the government there acts as a purchaser and does intervene um, in, in those markets with their, their market share. But I really don't think that's that's all that is there. I think we could have much lower prices here without moving to a, a government purchaser. Mm -hmm. But it does mean uh, mean that we have we restore kind of the balance in the market to have uh, more actual competition. But it is a fact that in some cases, when there are equally effective drugs, you know, in other countries, they they pit those those manufacturers against each other, get the best price, and that feeds to consumers. Uh, and here, many of the rules for you know even Medicare are that we have to offer both, and so there's no reason why those manufacturers would compete. And if you look at the resulting kind of shadow pricing in markets for insulin, uh, for other really expensive uh, drugs, kind of you you see that lack of of competition. So I really do think we could, you know, it it, it's, it feels strange to say we should look to other countries and how to restore a more competitive market, but I think that's where where we are at this point. Interesting. Um, and what's your thoughts on the drive to Canada situation? I mean, you know, that comes up every four or five years. Like, well, let's all get all the old people and put them in a bus. And after we stop by a couple of casinos, we'll go to Canada and get prescriptions and come back. It's a great question, especially since my former boss from my time in the house is Rahm Emanuel. And that was one of his, uh, our now beloved mayor of Chicago. Um, that was one of the bills he cared deeply about. And we worked a lot on um, in the early 2000s. So a, a couple of thoughts. I mean, I think that that is... That's not a real solution to the problem, I think. But for folks who live close to the, the border, that's obviously a, a necessary, I think, evil considering the price the prices we're seeing here. Um, there isn't, I think, broad support, though, for that proposal. There are pros and cons. I think there have been a lot of safety concerns raised broadly from all of the former FDA commissioners mm -hmm. on a bipartisan basis. And I think those are, are real concerns. So um, in my mind, when I think about how do we want to address this problem, I'd rather attack it from... Um, the root cause and less of a patchwork system. Well, I'd agree with Lauren that politically it's difficult, but but I really think the safety issue is kind of a red herring in, in some ways, right? So just one example, 
uh, that's well known. So Dara Prem was the one with the pharma bro, Martin Shkreli. Right. I like that guy. Yeah. He's great on TV. <laughs> and so nothing he did was illegal until he had all of his, you know, kind of financial schemes. But what he did on drug pricing was completely legal and mm-hmm. has been mirrored by a lot of uh, pharma or a lot of uh, pharma companies backed by Wall Street who engage in these schemes. Um, so my understanding of his, I don't mean to interrupt you there. Well, I do mean to interrupt you there, but um, is uh, the what I understand he did was he bought a drug that is off of patent that could be replicated that wasn't and jacked the price up a zillion percent and there was no real i mean his problem was not doing that his problem was wu-tan clan stuff and yep. financial dealings it had nothing to do with, so that was a totally legal for, practice for right securities prop the securities law not not fda law yeah. that got him um, but exactly that and what you, what they do and this is a practice widespread um among you know, Wall Street favorite companies is, you know, you take these off patent drugs like Daraprim uh, and and you you buy them and they're for they're extremely effective and extremely important. They save, you know, the the lives of pregnant mothers. Um, so so absolutely we are going to get those drugs to, to these people without a question, no matter the price. Um, but the fact is, it was being, you know, it was being made for about a dollar a pill. Uh, sold for just a, a teeny fraction above that. It wasn't a money maker. It was just kind of out there. Um, and GSK, major pharmaceutical manufacturer, was the original uh, was the original manufacturer of that. Uh, and so what Shakelly did is buy that and say, hey, you know, what's the value of a life? It's you know a million dollars. And so this drug saves a life. So I should price it at you know it wasn't a million dollars, but it was it was as high as he could could go close to that number. Um, and and they're just it's such a small population that gets it that the market doesn't fill that gap right mm-hmm. so generics don't have an incentive to come in because they'd be required to sell that drug again for two dollars a pill and would make nothing sure so they exploit kind of the market gaps that that exist but what i think is is telling about this example of Daraprim, uh, because i actually went out and did this is you can go to an uh, online pharmacy in in britain mm-hmm. um and I ordered that drug, so I got my, you know, street value prescription of twenty-one thousand dollars for fifty dollars plus shipping, mm-hmm. uh, and the box on it is printed GSK all over it because GSK still makes that drug everywhere in the world, except the U.S. because there's no value in them doing it in the U.S. So they sold the rights to that drug, um, you know, in the U.S. because they could get paid for it. Sure. Whereas everywhere else, they just kept doing it. So it, it just shows again, like. I mean, this is an incredibly broken market, and yeah. the you know the responsibility for it is really widespread. But Andy, I think you would agree that um, it doesn't get to the root cause of the problem, which Absolutely. is where the manufacturer price really starts. Yeah. And so, I think that's just a really important point, though. Um, I always wonder what we do about these orphan drugs, though—the drugs that are like you know, somebody actually did spend a bunch of money and found a real cure for something that is very small. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll use a specific example. My, uh, one of my closest friends, my college roommate, his daughter has Rett syndrome. Rett syndrome is a really small uh, uh, disease. It, um, it affects primarily girls in a really small population. Like, I want whoever in the world can go do that to f- do that and be incentivized to do that. Absolutely. And there's law on the books already to do that. There's the Orphan Drug Act, which has been around for, I think, 30, 40 years that allows that. I mean, they, it does provide specific incentives manufacturers to go 
develop drugs and treatments for exactly for people with rare diseases. So there's no question that's incredibly important. What's concerning, though, is when you have manufacturers then t- try to take drugs that are already on the market that are blockbusters and then, in addition, go get an orphan drug incentive just to create more of a monopoly. So yeah, right. we need to figure out a way that we incentivize true innovation in the space where we have rare diseases mm-hmm. and have no drugs versus allowing manufacturers to take a drug already on the market that's a blockbuster and then use that pathway just to exploit their own um, their own profiteering. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I'd like to take a quick turn back because both of you guys, back to a little bit of ACA stuff, let's take a, a step back here. You guys both had, were, had key roles when the ACA was passed. Um, Opposing roles, yeah. but yes, key <laughs> roles. Key roles. Um, and recently the Republicans um, have, have taken some actions, including, you know, trying to repeal the thing a whole bunch of times. Um, where are we with the ACA currently and kind of where do you see it going? Because I really feel like uh, prescription drugs are a a massive part of the healthcare system, but the whole system's kind of still jumbled around a little bit. Yeah. That's an official term, jumbled around, by the way. So what I would say is there, I think we're dealing with, with kind of similar sides to the same issue with the ACA and drugs in that I think the ACA really addressed coverage, um, but we're still struggling with with costs. And so when, you know, Laura and I were on different different sides, but I think we were both coming at it from wanting to, you know, a- address the same issues, which are we we've got to deal with with coverage. The U.S. had a you know, higher uninsured rate than any other country in the world, and that wasn't appropriate in the biggest economy in the world. Um, but also that costs as a percentage of GDP were too high, and we needed to do something about that. Um, so I think the ACA moved forward on, on the coverage side, um, but not enough on, on the cost side. And so now you're seeing this pressure continue that we have to do something to restore our economic competitiveness to, to, and also addresses, it, I, I think one of the symptoms is a lack of wage growth for the middle class because you know wages end up going into health care instead sure. of into your pocket. Um, so those, those kind of symptoms that haven't addressed have ended up, you know, uh, I think demonstrating themselves in populism in some other some other ways. So I, I think that the fact that everybody's focused on drug costs is is part of that same question that we've been struggling with for a while. Is like how do we get these costs under control? Sure. Um, so I you know I as a you know as a former staffer, I think the the debate was disappointing to me in that I think Republicans lost sight of the fact that you know we did have have questions about how. The ACA approached costs, and sure. we had different ways to do it. You know, speaking for myself, what I think is ironic about that is the things we wanted to do were much more disruptive than what mm-hmm. the ACA wanted to do. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, it would have led to, you know, maybe perhaps a more competitive market, but also a lot more disruption in the employer market. Yep. Um, but those were, I think, those were legitimate economic kind of policy yep. discussions. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I think the the repeal bills that went through lost sight of the fact that coverage matters, and when you're an economy that's increasingly moving to, uh, you know, the gig economy and the rest, there has to be a place for these people to go. Right. Um, and I don't think that that the repeal bills really dealt, uh, you know, took that issue seriously enough, and I think that's why you saw uh, so much of the concern uh, among the people about what what the real impacts would be. So unfortunately, I think we're, you know, not even at square one. I think we're kind of moving backwards. And uh, for the the country, I just think that's a, so, a real problem. So Lauren, I'll uh, jump in from that. And when did healthcare become like super partisan? I mean, because the ACA was all Democrats, 
and the repeal efforts and the and the one that went recently uh, under President Trump was all Republicans. Like, when do we become red team, blue team on health care? It feels like that should be – we can fight about taxes or something else, but it feels like we probably should all be on the same page that, you know, poor people should be covered, that drug prices shouldn't be a zillion dollars, and that, like, if you get sick, you should be able to get help. It's a great question. I think what I love about healthcare is that everyone has very strong views and every and different perspectives about how to address some of the key issues. So while Andy and I may not see eye to eye on every issue, I actually agree with about 95% of what Andy just laid out. I mm-hmm. do think the Affordable Care Act did a lot to try to contain costs. Um, I think the challenge is when you're dealing with one fifth of the of the economy, you know change is hard, as we all know, in a variety of different ways, um, but particularly changing behavior from physicians to hospitals to patients um, to health plans to employers, that, that's, that's hard, and that takes a lot out of people. Um, and so I think while the ACA did a really great job of trying to address those issues, we obviously could have done more, but we're trying to mitigate how much change we actually brought to the entire system. And also, you know, when you're thinking about these issues at a high level, it's really challenging to operationalize how do you try to get um, providers to be more economical while still at the same time providing a very high quality of care. And so when we were constructing the ACA, you know, I 100% agree with Andy that the vision was really making sure people have coverage, but also have coverage um, in a way they weren't being, you know, could no longer be denied care for pre-existing conditions, we wouldn't have lifetime limits. And so I think the ACA did a lot to really help consumers. Um, but I think there's definitely no question we could have done more to try to contain costs. Do you think the um, – so full disclosure here, I was uh, uh, on the House side working in leadership when we passed the ACA. And on the House side, we passed it with a public option. Um, there will probably be a lot of public option discussions as we get into presidential politics. Isn't there actually some truth to that that might be a way to cause some um, – some competition in the marketplace. Um, I mean, I, I think the ideas of socialized medicine and everything else, people lose their mind. But isn't like the theory about it actually have some grains of truth to it? Before we get to that, actually, I didn't answer your question. So can I come back to why politics? I asked a really good question. <laughs> you did. And okay. We'll get I'll there one second. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I think that the reason why, you know, it is such a part of issue now is I think partially back, you know, I think healthcare has just always been a tough issue for people because I think there's just an underlying question um, of whether or not government can do good. Um, and I think that spans lots of different issues. But I think from a democratic perspective, you know, we believe in government. We believe government can do a lot of good to help poor people, to help sick people. Um, and the approach we took in the Affordable Care Act was really trying to actually harness the market um, and have a market-based approach. And so at the time, you know, we poured over hundreds of bills that Republicans introduced in Congress and actually put together the ACA based on some work that Heritage and some other, you know, right of center think tanks put together to try to have a bipartisan conversation. Could we have done things a little bit differently to bring Republicans in sooner? You know, of course, absolutely. Hindsight's always twenty twenty. But in my mind, I think there's the politics of where we are now as a country is really just challenging because early on, my sense always was that the Republicans did not want to give President Obama a victory. And so even if we could have had agreement on substance, I think that was a too big of a political broach to, to overcome. It's similar thing we just saw with the tax cuts. It, you know, Democrats didn't really want to play ball with the president at all. On, so the, I, it, it is a little bit of a tit-for-tat thing. Now, since you're done defending the ACA, and I certainly appreciate that. <laughs> um, Have to do my part. Yeah. What about, the, what about this public option argument? And, and I, I'm more at a 10,000-foot level. I mean, some, some of this is 
crazy and super expensive and all that other stuff. And some of it is actually like presenting a real market challenge that, that, that manufacturers and others would have to deal with. Yeah, well, full disclosure, I work for a health plan now, so I think I'm officially paid to oppose the public option. But uh, from putting on my policy hat, I, I think the trick with the public option always has been that you know, when CBO, Congressional Budget Office, and others look at scoring, the whole tr- the whole trick to making a public option effective is is uh, associating it with govern- government administered prices, right? So you have to basically use Medicare pricing or something to to bring down the cost. Otherwise, it's not much more. Uh, cost effective than than a commercial health plan. So it really is, you know, getting at the prices that are ultimately paid to hospitals and physicians and potentially at, at, to drug companies, getting back to, to where yeah. we started. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I do think that becomes hard because, you know, reducing the cost of health care, either you're going to do it through these cooperative relationships. So our, our health plan has these accountable care organizations where we get yep. together with providers and and work together to you know to provide you know high quality uh, you know less costly care, but we do that by by essentially letting the providers you know tell us what needs to be done. Whereas you know we all know the problems with the fee for service system uh, and the rest. So I I think those are two you know two ways you can go about addressing this issue, and I think the the private market really. You know, needs to be challenged to to show that it can make higher, it can provide higher value care using uh, kind of market based incentives. Um, you know, as opposed to just just paying people less. But I do think the you know the irony of the you know Republican re- repeal and replace uh, you know, kind of whatever we've gone through for the past uh, <laughs> you know year and a half or or, or so. Some of uh, us Democrats think we've been going through this for a little while. Yeah, it's <laughs> a year and a half. <laughs> the welcome, Lauren. That the was right yeah, word, yeah, drama, exactly. whatever it is. Um, but I do think it is adding a tremendous amount of energy to single payer, and mm-hmm. so by you know s- standing in the way of making you know a more providing more market based options that were real uh, and and could have worked, uh, I th- I think that you know you're going to end up through these policies of short-term plans and associated health plans that are going to really divide up the market between the sick and the healthy, uh, you're going to end up with probably bare counties or bare states. And then what's going to fill that void? It's going right. to be you know, some kind of Medicare for anyone or everyone, whatever the latest tag is. Yep. Um, but that certainly is going to be a lot harder to tell people who have no access to care like no, you can't have Medicare, and then and then where are you going to be? Right. So I think I think a, a long term view of to what the political implications, uh, you know, would be to to this strategy, I think would have would have been well, <laughs> uh, you know, would have been needed at, at earlier in this year. Yeah. I think the other thing that's important just to keep in mind as we're having this conversation, which I agree, it's 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 a challenging dynamic right now. Um, is that you know over the last couple of years we've seen um, congressional um, you know changes to the law that further destabilize the market. I mean there are things that could have been done in the last few years that really would have helped to bring more competition and more plans to some of these counties. Um, and so I think it's really unfortunate that where and going back to your one of your points earlier, CR about having a very partisan conversation. You know the ACA is a, was a major piece of legislation and there wasn't any appetite to have any sort of conversation about even technical changes. Yeah. Um, and so that really, I think, hurt prospects um, in certain parts of the country. Um, and I, I 
completely agree with Andy that I do worry about what the future looks like, given that we've had all of these shots along the way at the law that are just really chipping it away at it. So you have the short-term limited duration plans, which yep. is now being pursued by the administration. You have association health plans. You know, we had the repeal of the individual mandate and a tax bill. Um, we had starting off many, many years ago, you know, cutting off funding for risk corridors. Um, so there are a lot of things you can point to of that really hurt the law. Um, and I really think it comes back to the partisan conversation of, you know, it really be great if Congress could get together and just have a, an honest conversation about changes and maintain the market as is. Because at the end of the day, we have real Americans who have significant health issues and they need access to stable coverage. And it's unfortunate that Congress has not been able to provide stability to the market over the last couple of years. The, the interesting thing that I find, and I've been overseas a little bit and family in Canada and other places, uh, they don't understand why we why our system is so screwed up. They don't understand why we don't take it as a priority. Why healthcare isn't, you know, uh, I feel like I'm using a campaign line here, but why healthcare isn't some kind of right rather than privilege? I mean, they will have lots of reasons to say. You know, my friends in London have lots of reasons to say why their health system could be improved. But what one thing they will say is it's totally necessary and they should fund it. And kind of everyone starts on that premise and it's weird like I, I feel like we don't start on the premise that we should is it a like, right or is it a privilege right and and that I think the politics misreads what the public thinks about it right because I do think so I'll get on my my soapbox for a second but I do think you know if you're a Republican like you ha- and, and you're believing in the American dream and people being upwardly mobile um, I mean you have to provide some opportunity for those lower middle income people to you know, move up um, from where they are and be sure. able to save and invest, and healthcare is a huge cost. And so, you know, one of the issues we had with the repeal and replace bill, as it was drafted, was there's a, a massive cliff for people who are on Medicaid, mm-hmm. uh, and then you know, which which you know Republicans wanted to change, but then you know when they moved on to their replacement, there was a huge disincentive against working at that point. So you would stay on Medicaid because you got a lot better coverage. And right. so I think the Trump voters, you know, when they were hearing Trump talk about this better deal they were going to get, you know, heard like we're going to get more. So I think they they, you know, if you look at some of the focus groups on this, like they heard that they were going to get more public benefit, not less. Um, so which I, is weird from a Republican yeah, audience, right? But right? these yeah. are lower middle income people who are struggling yeah. in a new economy. Yeah. And I think if you look at it at those dynamics, it's no wonder that they were thinking like, yeah, I want this better deal. I want Medicaid. Like, that right. has lower copays. That has lower premiums. Like, why not me too? And instead, the reaction was, we're going to take away kind of government benefit focused at the lower income. And I think it's a legitimate, you know, criticism that then, you know, ended up with with benefits through the, you know, tax cuts and the rest that went to the wealthy that I think there's just a confusion about out there. And, you know, the environment is what it is. Like, I think sure. it's hard for people to to really get, um, you know, what's true and what's not. And everybody's getting their facts from different places. But, I mean, I think that is the economic fact of what was going on. And I think as, you know, somebody who wants to support kind of market changes and, and uh, believes that, that we can construct ways to, to address, you know, income inequality and social mobility uh, in ways that are, you know, 
conservative with a small C, mm-hmm. you know, it's really frustrating to see the policies coming through on the Republican side just don't seem to match up with the needs in our society. Yeah, I think that's probably right. So I'm going to take a, uh, I have one final question for both of you, but we know the president's going to go speak uh, sometime next week or, or sometime soon. Um, um, maybe we'll have you guys back on afterwards to, 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 figure out what he actually said but so with every one of these podcasts i don't let anyone get out of here without asking some kind of question that throws them off so here's the question for both of you guys um you both are healthcare experts you're healthcare geniuses you've you've done a bunch of public policy in healthcare space what were you what would you do if you weren't doing this uh what, what would you do if you weren't a lobbyist what would you do if you weren't in the public policy space and you go first i'm putting you on the spot this is tied to the speech or just no. in general? Oh, I would open a no. bike shop, no doubt. There we go. Yeah. See, that's a good answer. Yeah. Why love, would you open a bike shop? I love bike gear. I love oh, all nice. that, like being outside. Um, I just bought a bike, in fact, a new bike, new cool. It changes colors. So oh. very, uh, very cool. Um, but yeah, that's, that's my uh, hobby. That's your non-lobbyist jo- job would be? Your non-public policy job would be bike I shop would be owner. Perfectly happy, and there are many times I remember telling uh, a reporter as I got on a plane from San Francisco that if John McCain, who was I grew up in Arizona, sure. was my political hero, if he comes back and you know after being diagnosed with with brain cancer, sure. as his good friend Ted Kennedy, who you know both Lauren and I were were on the hill when he came back to yep. you know do that vote on the hill, and there are tears in members' eyes. And, and if he came back to undo the work of his great friend, um, you know, having been diagnosed with the same disease, that I was out, I was done. I was going <laughs> to open my bike shop. And by the time I got off that flight, he said, He you gave know, the so. thumbs down. Yeah, he's like, how about that bike shop? Like, Here we out. But in the end, uh, he did the right thing, so I'm still doing this. But maybe it would have been better if, uh, well, it wouldn't have been better for the country, but maybe it would have been better for me. If, yeah, or, uh, or for the bike shop yeah, operation. Bike shop. All right, Lauren, so I can't possibly imagine you doing anything other than healthcare. <laughs> let's be honest with Meditation, you. Meditation. Uh, <laughs> yes, we joke. Andy knows that I tried to start uh, meditating uh, quite some time ago, and I lasted all of five days. And Andy uh, said he was going to call that, and he correctly called it that I did not last long at meditating. Five days was good. Five right. days was good. Yeah. Um, I have two answers. If you had asked me in my early 30s, late 20s, my plan, if I ever left Washington, was to move to Prague, where I had oh. spent a lot of time in college, and to open a bar. Great. And the bar was going to be named Tonic, T-O-N-I-K, accent on the I. And I was going to get a dog, and the dog's name was going to be Pivo, because Pivo in Czech means beer. Oh. That was our, my plan with my husband before we had children and decided to stay here forever. By the way, like... Bar owner and beer dog sounds way cooler than healthcare lobbyist. <laughs> I like being a healthcare lobbyist. <laughs> if you ask me now, if I were to leave and stay, stay in the United States and maintain my life with my family, I'd probably run a sleepaway camp. A sleepaway camp. Okay, awesome. I loved going to sleepaway camp. It's a rite of passage where I grew up, and I spent many summers starting from age nine till I was 15, two months every year living in a tent. It was on a platform, yep. but I would totally run a sleepaway camp. Uh, I- does anyone know? Well, not surprise you, by the way. She would potentially my brother <laughs> ran a sleepaway camp for many years, and going to visit him when he ran it was uh, a great memory for me. All right. Well, thank you uh, both for coming in here. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, this is uh, uh, obviously an important topic and one that's going to stick around for a while. So hopefully, we, we can have you back. Thanks a lot for coming in. Thank Thanks you for having us. I want to thank Andy and Lauren for coming into 14th and G. 
they've forgotten more about healthcare than I know at this point. Um, if you're looking for me, my email address is wooters at mc-dc.com. And I also want to thank my executive producer, Charlie Wooters, my son, who's 12, came in and helped us out with this podcast. All right, we'll see you next time. The intersection of business and policy, right here at 14th and G.